Welcome to the Naval Institute Podcast. I am Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So you just hey, got I'm hammered by a uh, summer thunderstorm out of nowhere. We did, yeah. This I'm, I'm uh, in Northern Virginia, and uh, yeah, at, at twelve thirty it was nice and sunny, and sun, you know, and by thirteen hundred we had like two inches of rain. It was insane. The only bit of news that that I wanted to chat about with with you and our devout listeners was this development on the NFL front. It's kind of random. I didn't I didn't know about this guy. Paul Cuisenberry was a member of the football team class of twenty fourteen was just drafted by the Patriots after a four-plus-year stint in the Marine Corps. So good for him, right? I mean, it sounds in oh, yeah. in perspective of folks waiving their commitment, it's kind of cool for a guy who's 28 years old uh, to be going into the NFL. So that's kind of an interesting development. The Patriots, naturally because of Bill Belichick's Annapolis pedigree you know his father was one of the assistant coaches for many years and so he grew up in Annapolis uh, and and so he's done this before with a number of academy football players so again this was kind of a surprise and that's kind of an interesting as we talk about Malcolm Perry and Noah Song and baseball and all these folks who are sort of wrestling with their commitment and what should I do and that sort of thing so this one it looks like a guy who actually did his time and now he's going to yeah. try to play NFL football. So good luck to him. Yeah, served his five or six year Naval Academy commitment, and now on to football. Yep. Go Patriots! Yeah, uh, no, except for that part. <laughs> Go Washington football team, right? That's my team, the Washington football the team, Washington football club, the yes. just plain football team. Right. Oh man. All right. Yep. And uh man, we're 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 coming into September. Boy, I can't believe how fast the uh, the year is going by and our team is still remote. We're still producing magazines and books and uh our conferences and events team is lining up things for the Coast Guard Academy event uh, this fall, the uh, SecNav uh, Maritime Security Dialogue in mid-September. It looks like September 16th. Um, the Naval Naval Academy, Naval Institute uh, History Conference uh, coming up in October as well. All all those events will be virtual. So uh, look on our website and um, we'll be providing more details on all of our uh, events and conferences. Yeah, so the History Conference particularly, it's Hollywood and the military is sort of the, I, I'm probably getting the exact name wrong, but, uh, uh, you know, we've got Dale Dye and some other folks. There's some invited folks that are going to be sort of A-list names we're trying going to try out some new software for that um that's very interactive um so you know if you attended the annual meeting last when was that april In april end of yeah. april yeah so uh, that was we we really enjoyed that we think for a virtual experience it was great you know pete daly our ceo fielded questions we had Alma fogo beam in from naples um we liked it, but we weren't satisfied that that was as good as it gets. So our events team has been working with uh, different vendors to find the best possible virtual meeting software, and they think they're onto something. So um, look on the homepage under the events vertical for the events that are coming up naturally um, and register and, and get ahead of the process. There's some good stuff, as Bill just mentioned, coming down the pike. Yeah. So let's go to our guest today, uh, beaming in from the Coast Guard Academy is the winner of this year's Coast Guard Essay Contest, Lieutenant Andrew Ray. 
uh, who wrote uh, in the, and it's in the um, uh, the August Coast Guard focused issue of Proceedings. The article is called "Employ Coast Guard Lead Debts in the Indo-Pacific." So a lead debt is a law enforcement detachment that goes on board a navy ship or a coast guard ship or or even um, uh, an allied or or a friend's uh, nation's uh, coast guard or naval vessel to do law enforcement at sea. Uh, so first of all, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. And how are things up in uh, New London? Bill, thanks for the warm introduction war as well. Things are good up here. We, uh, we're partially cloudy, about 84. <laughs> and uh, the humidity here is definitely a change of pace from San Diego when I used to be at Tactical Law Enforcement Team Pacific. So uh, sweating a lot more than uh, I used to, but it's nice. We, we welcomed the Corps of Cadets back last weekend, and today's the first day of class. So it's, wow. it's nice to see the academy vibrant and alive with the activity. When I first reported this summer, it was kind of eerily quiet. Um, we started bringing back all the classes and phases, getting them ready for summer training. And now the school year, which is officially underway as of today. So quite exciting. Wow. How is it different than a normal year? The Coast Guard Academy has a 200-week leadership experience, and it's really hard to accomplish that in a virtual environment. So much of it depends on in-person professional development and mentorship. Um, and a lot of leadership experiences that you can't get through, you know, a Zoom call with your academic advisor or company officer. So originally the cadets went on spring break on March 9th and the decision was made while on spring break to have them stay home and go to virtual class for the remainder of the semester. So it took a lot of people, uh, long hours to figure out the best way ahead, develop, um, you know, new syllabuses for class and figure out how to continue to promote the chase hall practicum, which is a training-driven piece that outlines the expectations and targeted leadership competencies for every class within the Corps of Cadets. So they found out a way to do it virtually. Um, and then the real the real win was we were able to get all the cadets back this summer, um, still get them to operational units um, to engage in their summer training session, and then bring them back here in mid-August to kick off the school year. So what's the bubble maintenance situation here in Annapolis? They have... About three quarters of the brigade back, the the youngsters, the sophomores, aren't quite back. But there's no liberty, um, very limited interface with the outside world, what they call vector limiting, to make sure that this bubble can be maintained. Varsity sports have been mitigated, if not canceled altogether. What are you guys doing with respect to that kind of thing? We did a two-week restriction of movement for every class when they came back in the summer. Um, And then... When they came back after their summer assignments, we did what well, are currently in a medical monitoring period. So two weeks where they're not allowed to leave base, so no liberty. Um, obviously, face masks are being worn all across campus when you're not in your own room or office. But the unique thing for us compared to those service academies is the Coast Guard Academy doesn't have the same you know, on-campus or on-base say facilities that you know the Air Force Academy would with golf courses and other activities to keep cadets occupied. So through a lot of risk mitigation, um, the Coast Guard Academy is going to authorize liberty um, in certain instances under certain uh, precautions starting next weekend for the cadets once they're outside of this medical monitoring period. And the other thing that we're doing here is surveillance testing. So every day about two percent of the academy population it's a COVID test for about 15% a week, um, and we're going to use that 
surveillance testing as a, as a gauge to see where we're at for when we need to bring back liberty, when maybe we can open up some more opportunities for cadets, um, and just keep a, a constant, you know, pulse on what's happening throughout the New London community and the academy. Andrew, you're a company officer there. Um, how is morale these days among the cadets? It ebbs and flows. Um, morale is high. All the cadets are, are, are back from their summer assignments. Uh, you know, reconnecting with friends, meeting, you know, their new company officer who is, you know, awesome, awesome guy. And, uh, <laughs> but for them, you know, it's, it's fun to see them happy, obviously, to be back in Chase Hall, back with their friends. Um, and especially the, the first class who, you know, they have less than a year left and, uh, until they become ensigns in May. So very exciting time for them. I'm sure that, um, having the potential of liberty this weekend, is a very encouraging for them as well. Well, it's interesting to hear the difference between how uh, it's being managed mm-hmm. up in New London uh, versus Annapolis. You know, the two schools are very different in size. So we'll be curious to hear going forward how it, how it goes, um, especially with that testing regime as well. Let's, uh, let's, let's turn back to your article for a minute. So uh, congrats on winning first prize in our Coast Guard essay contest this year. Uh, the article is called Employ Coast Guard Leadettes in the Indo-Pacific. So give our listeners a, a 30,000-foot perspective on uh, what your article is about. Similar to what you said, uh, the Coast Guard has two tactical law enforcement teams, um, Tactical Pacific and Tactical South. Um, tactical Pacific is out of San Diego, California, and we are the parent command to 10 law enforcement detachments or leadettes. And leadettes deploy around the world in support of drug interdiction, defense readiness, and maritime law enforcement operations. And so traditionally, um, we embark, let's say, Navy allied and partner nation vessels to conduct drug interdiction operations. But what we've noticed over the past five, 10 years is leadettes have this skill set that can be used, you know, in the Gulf of Guinea, in Western Africa to support fisheries, um, boardings and help regulate the fishing industry for those West African nations. Additionally, um, for what I advocate in employee Coast Guard leadettes in the Indo-Pacific is leadettes have the right expertise, they are the right size, um, and they complement partner nation forces where they can go out in the Indo-Pacific, conduct boardings to help support IUU fishing, um, help bolster the capabilities and capacity of some of the small um, island nations in the Pacific, in addition to enforce um, United Nations Security Council resolution. So uh, truly a force multiplier, um, and leadettes are able to do this worldwide, completely organic, able to deploy within 24 hours, and can really provide a lot um, to DOD and Coast Guard commands. So uh, you mentioned the, the leadettes, and you came from the TACLET there in San Diego, how big is a, a law enforcement detachment? What's the the uh, composition of that team? And then you also used a uh, an acronym IUU fishing. So explain to our listeners what that means. So a lead at traditionally is anywhere between eight to ten team members. Each lead at has an officer in charge who is traditionally a lieutenant, junior grade, or a lieutenant. Um, there's a chief chief maritime enforcement specialist who is the assistant officer in charge. And then the rest of the team is comprised of maritime enforcement specialists, which is a rating within the Coast Guard, um, and their job is to be subject matter experts in maritime law enforcement. The unique thing about LEADETs currently is each team has a bosun's mate 
as well as a machinery technician. So we get a little more subject matter expertise outside of the traditional maritime law enforcement world where we have a boat expert, um, you know, an expert that's a coxswain able to um, help with some custody crew things and provide, you know, another perspective during a boarding in addition to a machinery technician, which is great for the engine room, troubleshooting, um, all of those sorts of things. And the IUU acronym is illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing, um, which occurs a lot in Western Africa and a lot in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, specifically, I mentioned in my article, I talk about OMSI, which is the Oceania Maritime Security Initiative, which exists in partnership between the Coast Guard and the Navy um, to execute OMSI um, and target IUU fishing. You know, a lot of that involves doing boardings with partner nation ship riders to get on board, verify catch, um, and promote a regulated fishing industry. So part of your article, I mean, a significant part of it is uh, how the Coast Guard can kind of get in the game, pushing against back against Chinese influence um, and some of the Chinese illegal activity in uh, in the South China Sea or, or in the broader Indo-Pacific so you mentioned IUU fishing. To what extent is the Chinese fishing fleet uh, part of that problem? They are. They're a substantial problem. Um, in my article, I, I reference the impact that some of these fishing fleets have. And when they enter the exclusive economic zone of a island nation, then that island nation doesn't have the capacity or the capability to you know, push out their coast guard or maybe their small navy. They can come in and absolutely decimate um, a fish species. And then as soon as that island nation no longer has fishing as their major source of revenue, transnational criminal organizations can come in, take advantage. And, of course, the citizens and the fishing uh, fishermen need, you know, another way to make money. And in turn, they might start moving moving drugs or illegal contraband. Um, So, again, that's very hypothetical, um, but it has been seen in the region across some island nations. Um, you know, Fiji has become a massive um, transshipment hub for the flow of illegal narcotics. And so, you know, with our ability to bolster the capacity of the Fiji Coast Guard and Navy, hopefully we could push um, some Chinese fishing fleets out of their waters, promote Fiji fishing, um, and then bring all that GDP back into the Fiji economy and build up internally. I, I think some of our listeners probably don't understand how a Coast Guard career goes. If if you're stationed in one of these these leadettes, um, where are you based? What what? How do you how do you get there? Uh, how, how does that work? Because generally, you know, if I'm a a Navy guy or girl, I'm part of a carrier strike group, or I'm on a small boy that's in a carrier strike group, or I'm based in a place like Yakuska or something like that. How does it work from the Coast Guard side of the house? So, Ward, when once a cadet graduates or sorry graduates, they traditionally will go to be a serve as a deck watch officer or a student engineer on a Coast Guard cutter. Um, usually, what we found to be the most successful recipe for a tacklet officer in charge or a leadet officer in charge um, is a prior deck watch officer that's coming from a cutter that did a lot of drug interdiction or a lot of boardings in general. So once a new um, or prospective OIC reports to Tacklet, they traditionally already have their boarding officer qualification and competency 
um, and they have some operational experience under their belt. So once they get to Tacklet and they get you know, placed in charge of a lead at, they go through a few other C schools, as the Coast Guard calls them, um, to really hone their skills and kind of build that baseline expertise. And from there, um, they'll conduct a break-in deployment um, where they'll be on board, you know, a Navy or an allied ship under kind of the tutelage of, of an experienced, qualified guy or gal. And from there, you know, they take a qualification board, which is a, a deployable team leader qualification. And that's your golden ticket to be able to take a, a team out. So not to get too specific, um, tacklets and leadettes fall under the Coast Guard's deployable specialized forces community, which is under the response ashore community and career path. So while you know, in the Navy, you have a surface warfare officer, um, and that's their track. Similarly, a Coast Guard officer can be assigned to a tacklet, um, which of course falls under the deployable specialized forces community, and then um, they'll continue along the response ashore track um, for their operational specialty in the Coast Guard. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your experience as a uh, uh, leading a lead debt, if you will. What what kind of ship did you deploy on? And where were you and uh, what did you see at sea? Was it mostly uh, drug enforcement? Was it counter IUU? You know, what was the focus? My first deployment, I was breaking in uh, deployable team leader and I was assigned to a Coast Guard minesweeper. And we sailed down to the Eastern Pacific um, and we were doing drug interdiction for about two months in the Eastern Pacific. And that was from November to December. And... Canadian minesweepers are very interesting boats. They are flat-bottomed, um, so they are like a bathtub in the mighty eastern Pacific. So um, it definitely takes a day or so to get your sea legs on one of those. It's completely different than any other ship I've been on. Um, but my the rest of my tacklet and leadette career was uh, was quite different from the norm. Um, for good, I definitely appreciate it. I was the lone Spanish-speaking officer at Tacklet Pacific at the time. So... The door opened for me to participate in a lot of unique international engagements um, to include I led a lead at in Spain and I participated in an exercise called Phoenix Express. Um, and that is a naval six fleet exercise um, based in the Mediterranean Sea with all of the European and North African um, nations that border the Med and it focuses on illegal and mass migration. Um, the smuggling of weapons and drugs and humans um, in the Mediterranean. So we were there for a handful of weeks providing training, um, running some scenarios and mock boardings underway to provide these nations with a baseline of interoperability. I also had the unique opportunity to spend about a month in Lima, Peru, in, in support of UNITAS, which is a massive naval exercise um, that gets nations from all over the world, specifically um, North and South America, to come participate. And again, all about interoperability and a unified front to support um, you know, drug interdiction on, in the Pacific in addition to you know, other illegal maritime activity. I also had the unique opportunity to leverage some of my experience and attend various planning events um, to support all sorts of other international exercises. And so I was in Paris and Spain and Tunisia. And I think that's something that gets lost on some people is how global the Coast Guard is, but truly how global leadettes are. 
Um, we have lead ads, you know, in Africa, Southeast Asia, and the South China Sea, across Europe, doing subject matter expertise exchanges, Central and South America. Um, so we really have um, quite a bit of reach and influence, which is awesome. I would say the highlight of my time in charge of a lead at was conducting combined operations in Costa Rica for about two months. I, I led an adaptive force package of Coast Guard deployable specialized forces units uh, down in Costa Rica. So we did this incredible JSET with NSW and the Costa Rican uh, special forces for two to three weeks. And then we rolled right into combined operations. And so we were launching um, Costa Rican interceptors alongside uh, the Costa Rican Coast Guard um, interdicting interdicting drug smugglers. And so I'm proud to say I was able to orchestrate the first combined Costa Rican Coast Guard drug interdiction um, in history. And we got about a thousand kilos off of a fishing vessel. Um, and that really laid the foundation for us to, for us being the Coast Guard, to explore more uh, combined operations with partner forces and partner nations. So from there, LEADETs have conducted combined operations um, in Honduras um, and additionally in Guatemala. And so one of my last last acts at TASA Pacific was coordinating combined operations for the first time with the Guatemalan Fuerzas Especial Naval, uh, their special forces. Um, lucky enough to get a team down there for 45 days at the end of uh, 2019, and they interdicted a low-profile vessel that was smuggling just over 400 kilos, and that was the first interdiction between the Guatemalan uh, Guatemalan Special Forces and the Coast Guard as well. So uh, a lot of unique opportunities. Um, obviously, some of the best is when you're underway with the team, uh, just hanging out, obviously conducting boardings and interdicting drug smugglers, and then the opportunities to go in-country and work alongside some of our you know, partner nation professionals is just once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, the Naval Institute does a leadership conference in New London every year. Unfortunately, we were unable to do it this year because of the pandemic. But two years ago, we had a panel with a number of fleet operators. And what struck me as a Navy guy is just how much action your average O3 or E7 has seen by the time you guys reach that rank. And, and so, you know, we like to try to motivate academy mids by talking about the fact that the Navy and the Marine Corps are expeditionary forces, so you don't need a hot war in order to fire shots in anger. But for a Coast Guard Academy cadet, you guys can really say you will do for sure, as long as there's hurricanes, as long as there are there's flow of drugs, and as long as there are fisheries in dispute, not to mention when you put on your DOD, you know, adjunct hat, you will you will always do what you're training to do. And so as you describe what you did during that deployment to Bill, it sounds like no two days were alike. There's a cool picture on page 24 of some Coast Guard folks interdicting what looks to be one of those drug submarines, you know, those things with low freeboard and kind of a high speed homemade looking thing. Is that true? Would you feel like that that you're really doing what you thought you would be doing as a Coast Guard officer? Absolutely. So I actually had no clue what I would be doing as a Coast Guard officer. Um, best gamble I ever took in life was coming to the Coast Guard Academy. Um, but absolutely, it's almost, and I won't speak for, for the afloat community, but it's almost an expectation that if you are a junior officer assigned um, to a major Coast Guard cutter, 
Um, especially in a deck watch officer billet, the expectation is you will also certify as a boarding officer. Um, there's also a lot of student engineers who will complete their student engineer training on some Coast Guard cutters, go ahead and earn their underway OOD letter um, and come to TACLET as well because um, they have gone through you know even more um, qualification standards and still earn a boarding officer qualification. And they found out it wasn't engineering that they wanted to do, but it was boardings, maritime law enforcement, and drug interdiction. Um, yeah, but I can absolutely say the amount of operational opportunities for a Coast Guard junior officer are incredible. And it extends beyond the afloat community and tacklets. Um, if you look to you know, Coast Guard junior officers that are assigned to various sectors, uh, which are local regional commands, um, they're running and coordinating hurricane operations and local boardings. I have a very close friend who used to be um, a lead at OIC who's stationed in Oregon at Sector Columbia River. And he was underway with the local sheriffs the other day and coordinates with the Coast Guard Auxiliary every day. Um, so great, unique opportunities at the 01, 02, and 03 level for Coast Guard officers. Andrew, with respect to the Indo-Pacific um, situation and the way forward, what is it the Coast Guard needs? Because that threat is not mitigating. It's going to get more and more pervasive as we go forward. Um, so what is it you guys need to, to adequately resource the leadettes in that theater? So number one is going to be capacity. Um, Tacklet Pacific has 10 leadettes. Tacklet South has eight. And while 18 teams of 10 people seems like a lot, when we look at all of the Coast Guard cutters we support, we look at the international exercises and engagements we're supporting, in addition to the allied and Navy ships that are conducting counter-drug work in the Eastern Pacific and the Caribbean Sea, um, we realize that each tacklet could use one or two more leadettes. And that way we don't have to shortchange any of our combatant, you know, geographical combatant commanders. We can still meet all of our, you know, we'll say, I'm not going to say traditional Coast Guard missions, but the Coast Guard missions that the general public thinks we do. Um, but it will still allow us to get out into the Indo-Pacific um, and support some of these small partner nations in addition to JIAD of West, which is Joint Interagency Task Force West, um, based out of Honolulu that is Indo-PACOM's you know, executive agent for um, drug interdiction and counter-drug activities in the Indo-Pacific. So capacity would be number one. And I think a little more of an appetite as well. Um, you know, again, the Coast Guard, we're known for our expertise in search and rescue. We're known for our expertise in you know, counter-drug operations down you know, in Central and South America. Um, but I think articles like mine will hopefully educate readers that, you know, the Coast Guard really has this skill set. Um, let's get them out there. Let's, you know, advertise our ability to um, DOD, geographic combatant commanders, and let them see how beneficial um, the Coast Guard can be. And one of the things I, I particularly liked about my article is where I talked about the size of, um, you know, Army troops or companies, I'm not sure the technical term that they were sending out um, to the Indo-Pacific through their an exercise series called Pacific Pathways. They're sending about 10 to 15 members to help train these Pacific nations. Well, the beauty of it is a Coast Guard leadette is 10 to 12 members. I would argue that we have 
the better subject matter expertise in Nisenzo site exploitation, maritime law enforcement, and some of the other critical facets that these Pacific nations need. So I think also a little bit of appetite, a little bit of education um, for you know some of the senior leaders leadership to realize you know just the absolute gold mine that attack what is. Hey Andrew, what kind of feedback have you gotten on your article so far? Anyone uh, higher up in, uh, in Coast Guard leadership reached out to you uh, about this? Or I'm also curious if um, some of your other lead at team, um, you know, your your co-leads, if you will, at the TACLIT in San Diego, did they deploy on either Navy or Coast Guard ships or allied ships in the Indo-Pacific, maybe out uh, you know, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia come to mind? What kinds of, uh, what kind of appetite is there for this idea? Uh, had a lot of fellow deployable specialized forces community members reach out and uh, especially prior lead at OICs and TACLIT members and, you know, it's easy for folks in our community to appreciate the article um, because, of course, we're always looking to, um, you know, extend the brand, which is, you know, lead at, um, and get us more work in some awesome places in the world. Um, had some folks from the Coast Guard's Office of Emerging Policy uh, reach out, which is which is always nice because they're curious to know how a lead at can fit um in other parts of the world. I mean, in specifically, they're looking at, you know, Coast Guard operations as a whole. Um, so folks from there, I had prior, um, chief of operations, um, and some other folks from Giant West reach out, um, and congratulate me as well as, you know, folks within the TACLET program specifically. Another awesome, the Office of Defense Operations, and he forwarded up his chain of command, um, and got some great viz at the, you know, the 06 to the 08 um, level within the Coast Guard, which is always, which is always very nice. I think, you know, Bill, you definitely know whenever you publish anything, you gotta have thick skin, um, because people love their comments. And, you know, I think at one day I, I spent maybe five minutes reading the comments and, uh, I laughed at a few of them, uh, realized how some people need to brush up on Coast Guard, I would say international deployment and operational history. And so, but it's always nice because you read these comments and now I, they essentially have written the argument for me for my next essay. Um, they've provided me some great questions uh, to answer um, to kind of, you know, continue to dispel the doubters about tacklets and leadettes. Um, shifting to, you know, the Coast Guard and, you know, had I known folks on leadettes that have been out in the Indo-Pacific and Thailand and things like that, um, Tacklet Pacific, um, we solely source leadettes for the OMSI for that Oceania Maritime Security Initiative. Um, so on average, while my article talks about how days in support of OMSI are decreasing, um, we're also looking forward to um, a substantial deployment um, this winter uh, where we'll have a lead at on board a Navy ship out in that part of the world. Um, and they will, they visit a whole bunch of, of countries while they're there um, to include the federal states of Micronesia, Palau, um, you know, obviously they, you know, anywhere in that high seas corridor between Hawaii and Guam and everything a little bit north to it, um, they, they visit, they stop, they bring on ship riders, they conduct engagements coincidental to operations in ECTO, um, and some of these, some of these countries, which is essentially an extended port call for, you know, maybe four to five days where they do a quick, you know, quick maritime law enforcement, you know, three day training and subject matter expertise exchange. Another, a 
incredible opportunity that the that LEADETs have and the Coast Guard in general is uh, is called CCAT, and that's the Southeast Asia Cooperation and Training Exercise um, that the Navy and Coast Guard run traditionally based out of the Philippines and Thailand and a handful of other countries out there. And that usually brings together anywhere from 13 to 20 Southeast Asia and South China Sea nations. Um, and they come participate and they go through a some robust maritime law enforcement training, again, to build interoperability. And then we get everyone underway and they conduct underway mock training scenarios. Um, and they helps them with command and control, um, helps them with, you know, communicating to, you know, their, their allies and their neighbors um, in order to coordinate a coordinated response to some international incident in the maritime domain. So a lot of great opportunities for LEADETs out in that part of the world. Um, and of course, I, I hope particularly that um, we get more LEADETs out there to conduct, you know, combined operations alongside Fiji, which has a really robust bilateral agreement with the Coast Guard that would absolutely allow for combined operations to support drug interdiction um, and a few of these other partner nations that could really benefit from um, a lead at being, you know, hosted, we'll say for a month, a uh, month or so to run through some training and uh, follow on with operations. It's interesting that you mentioned that uh, Oceania Maritime Security Initiative. Uh, you look at the size of the exclusive economic zones of some of those mid-Pacific and South Pacific nations. They're massive. And these, you know, small small landmass countries, which have maybe multiple or even thousands of islands, um, their EEZs are so gigantic, they can't possibly support a force big enough to police uh, their their own EEZ from incursions by, you know, uh, you know, foreign fisheries, right, by the Chinese or by other nations, uh, you know, illegal uh, fishing vessels. And so that's, a, that's a critical capability. And as you point out, if they, if they can't, profit from their own uh, fisheries, you know, that then their income goes down and that leads to all kinds of problems, domestic, you know, security, law enforcement and uh, welfare sorts of problems in those nations. So it's a it's a critical capability. Absolutely. And I think the, the thing that makes obviously the Chinese fishing fleet so unique is how they're backed by the Chinese Coast Guard and these various other agencies. So it's not just, you know, Captain Jones's fishing fleet, you know, who runs 20 tuna saners out, you know, doing their thing. It's, you know, Captain Jones's, you know, tuna saners who now have, you know, essentially an armed escort via a Chinese Coast Guard vessel or another, you know, one of their paramilitary organizations to essentially escort them and guide them to the fishing grounds. They're going to be that first line of defense while the ships continue to fish um, until they get driven out of their EEZ. But you're 100% right, Bill. The size of the EEZs in comparison to some of these small Indo-Pacific nations, Indo-Pacific island nations in particular, uh, it's it's truly incredible. Um, and without the capacity or without the regional framework or the regional partnerships, it, it's near impossible. I mean, the Pacific is just a massive expanse of ocean. So the article is Employee Coast Guard Leadettes in the Indo-Pacific. The author is Lieutenant Andrew Ray, U.S. Coast Guard. First prize in the Coast Guard essay contest and can be found in the current issue, the August issue of Proceedings, page 20 to 25. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on the Proceedings podcast today. Uh, Ward, Bill, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to hopefully publishing with Proceedings in USNI again. Fantastic. Cool.
You're pushing yeah, against just, an open door. Yeah, absolutely. And for our <laughs> listeners, I just remind you that uh, our essay contests, almost all of our essay contests, have prize money that is significant, that makes it worthwhile for a lieutenant or a chief to give up a weekend. So Andrew's uh, check was a $5,000 uh, first prize check, $2,500 to second prize, and $1,500 to uh, third prize. And right now we are coming up on the deadline for the uh, Marine Corps essay contest. And then at the end of September, we'll be coming up on the deadline for the Simsec Naval Institute first ever uh, naval fiction contest. So a couple couple big contests coming up that are available and open for anyone who wants to participate. And then we have the, it's not a new one, but it's a new sponsor. Booz Allen is sponsoring the Information Warfare Essay Contest, which is uh, our February issue of the magazine. I'm not sure what the deadline is for that one. Bill, have you established a deadline for that one? Yeah, I think the deadline's going to be, is that one uh, 30 November, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. So uh, if you're ever curious about what the deadlines for our essay contests are, there's actually a vertical on the proceedings front door called essay contests. And all the information you need is right there. So once again, thank you very much, Andrew, for your time. And uh, good luck to you as you and the, the Corps get back together for academic year. Lord, I certainly appreciate it. I wish you and Bill the absolute best. Uh, please stay safe and healthy uh, down in Maryland. And uh, enjoy some burgers, cookies, and old day on my behalf, if you would. <laughs> we absolutely will. It's, it's man- Although Bill's in, in Virginia, so he's, he's not quite uh, old day fluent. Although he does have a day <laughs> job in Maryland. And I have introduced him to the flying dog Old Bay Brew, which he loved. Certainly will, Lloyd. Certainly will. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.